Hello and welcome to the Synopsis Podcast, where we break down the history, economics, culture, and geopolitics surrounding the world's other superpower. I'm Michael. And I'm Sam. And today we are joined by our co-researcher for this episode, Zach Smith. Zach, welcome aboard. What's up, guys? Super excited to be on the podcast, and uh, thanks again for having me. Yeah, well, we're glad to have you. It is no secret that China is locked in a technological arms race with the United States, One of the most hotly contested fields in this race is that of artificial intelligence, or AI for short. The Chinese Communist Party, in conjunction with Chinese businesses and universities, has embarked on a multi-trillion dollar plan to become the world leader in AI development and innovation by the year 2030. Already, they are leading in several important metrics, like the raw number of AI-related patents and the overall number of AI engineers working in the country. But, as we will discuss it is far from a foregone conclusion that China will eclipse the combined capabilities of its rivals. The superior quality of American research, a stifling environment for innovation at home, and a lack of top-tier talent in China mean that Silicon Valley is likely to keep its crown at least until the next major breakthrough in the field of AI. So, what, in layman's terms, is AI? How are the major powers competing for dominance? And what is potentially at stake for the winners and losers? Before we begin... Please note that we are not a technology podcast, and though we will touch on some of the basics of AI and how it works, we will be looking at this topic primarily through the lens of international competition and strategy. That said, we'd like to start with a quick overview of what's important to understand about the technology so that you can make sense of everything that follows. Yeah, so to begin, um, I'd like to go over briefly what AI is and what it isn't, starting with what it isn't. Because although the term AI, artificial intelligence, is technically descriptive, I think it conjures up a lot of the wrong images in people's minds. AI is not Skynet, it's not killer robots, it's not the Terminator, it's not Zordon from Power Rangers, and it's certainly not that one little dinky robot from iRobot that uh, needed Will Smith to come save us all. (laughs) You know, know, instead, the most general way to think of AI is that it is the next technological revolution. Um, You know, think of it like in terms of the original industrial revolution, the advent of the computer, the advent of the internet. It is an increase in technology that is going to augment every section of our life. You know, some in areas that you already use uh, AI in, you know, for instance, might be if you've ever used Google Maps and it reroutes you. That's AI processing right there. Um, The way that AI works, and again, we're not going to get too technical, is that it crunches a large amount of data in order to develop insights into the world that we might not be able to see as humans. The term artificial intelligence is correct, but the way that AI processes is very different than how you or I take the world around us and kind of imagine it. Um, I like to use the metaphor, if you're familiar with statistics at all, AI functions kind of similar to a regression analysis insofar as you can provide it with a lot of data and AI is able to determine trends and realities about the world through the computation thereof. And uh, to kind of help explain it even further, Zach, why don't you jump in? Yeah, absolutely. Um, You are correct, Sam. We do not need Shia LaBeouf or Will Smith to save us. (laughs) And uh, the reason for that is... AI is not intelligence or is not intelligent in the sense of a human. It is binary. It is ones and zeros. It is yes and no. Think of AI as a boost 
significant boost, orders of magnitude, to any pre-existing system. It adds intelligence, and it does that through repetitive learning and progressive algorithms that run behind the scenes in many hidden layers to help optimize the pre-existing framework for the software. So it does this with large amounts of data. It is heaps and heaps and heaps. And one of the great things about AI is we have reached a point in time where we no longer have to manually input this data, which was a pretty crucial limitation in the past. We now have, believe it or not, AI to do that for us. With that, though, you do, in fact, still have limitations. As I spoke of before, data, we need tons of it, tons and tons and tons of it. And just to briefly touch on some of the downsides and limitations of AI, because it is not just all-out Superman machinery just yet, it does require a vast amount of computational power, and not everyone has access to that. Uh, it requires very, very large amounts of raw data in order to function correctly. And these algorithms do require, as a result, a lot of time uh, to train to the point that they are actually efficient, in some cases, uh, several, several months uh, in order to get to a serviceable point. Yeah, and definitely keep that data point in mind for later. Kaifu Li, the chief AI VC venture capital guy in China right now, uh, describes it as you know, in this new industrial revolution, data is the new oil and China is the new Saudi Arabia in terms of just the raw importance of data. But, um, you know, so we, we sort of given our list, again, we're not a technolo technology podcast. Uh, we've given our listeners a brief overview of AI. So we're going to kind of shift it more into the focus of what the Synopsis podcast is about. And to give a brief anecdote, this might be apocryphal, but I think it was too good to let go. There's a story about Thomas Edison. Right after he had invented electricity, he was trying to popularize it at a World's Fair type deal and, you know, showing off the marvels of this new technology, electricity. So uh, Baker comes up to him and says, Mr. Edison, this new electricity is very impressive, but what does this have to do with my baking business? And... <laughs> It's it's a little funny because if you think about it, like what doesn't it have to do? Like we flip on a switch and electricity lights up a room and we don't think anything about it. In the same way as that, AI is going to be a sea change in the overall levels of technology um, in our world. So, you know, you can think of it kind of in terms of look at look at what the invention of gunpowder did for warfare and how the first uh, countries that were able to get ahead of that new technology were able to dominate the battlefield. Think about how the United States dominance of early internet and tech startups and that sort of thing gave it tremendous economic advantages relative to other powers within the world. So, you know, AI is going to be the new technology frontier that is going to be important to maintain control over economically as well as militarily. And of course, AI has already blazed quite a trail uh, along those lines. Um, real quick, have any of you guys used... Uh I know um, you mentioned that uh, GPS pathfinding has been affected by AI. Did any of you use the old Garmin machines way back in the day? Yeah, it was terrible. They were terrible. absolutely awful, weren't they? Yeah, like god awful. I got lost so many times it wouldn't correct the path in time for me to miss that like one for me to hit that one crucial turn on the interstate or whatever. Uh, Google Maps is pretty good about it now. I would say, uh, in fact, a, a wide variety of applications, including Waze and Apple Maps, are all pretty usable. Um, that's one very solid real-world example of how AI has advanced. Um, so moving on from that, uh, I think it's time for us to get into the different ways in which each country is developing AI. China and the United States take very different approaches in this regard. Uh, Sam, I will kick it back to you to start us off. Yeah, so <clears throat> again, uh, 
people in the West might have heard the story of Deep Blue beating Garry Kasparov in 1997. Uh, Kasparov was at the time the world leader in chess. And this, you know, caused some ripples in the popular imagination. I think most, most people have heard of it. It's a pretty striking event. But what many of us may not know is that almost exactly 20 years later in 2016, uh, so 19 years later, um, AlphaGo, another AI algorithm, was able to beat Lisa Dole in the game of Go. And for those of you who are unaware, Go is, look, you know, looks kind of like Chinese checkers, but it is a game many, many, many times more complex than uh, chess. I heard it quoted at 37 orders of magnitude more complex in terms of the number of positions on the board game. So, um, you know, and moreover, what's important about Go is that it is a cultural touchstone, particularly in the East, uh, in a way that Chess is not in the United States. So what am I getting at with all this? Well, when that victory occurred in 2016, it's been described as a Sputnik moment for the CCP. For those of you who aren't aware, obviously Sputnik, uh, the first Soviet satellite launched into space and really prompted the U.S. to undergo what we now think of as the space race. So, um, you know, it was at this moment in 2016 that China under the CCP really shifted a huge amount of their direction towards the development of AI. And to discuss that further, Zach. Absolutely. While uh, the trajectory uh, for AI was long in the making, it was only a year after the AlphaGo moment that the State Council released its first unified document outlining China's AI policy with an overarching goal to make China the world leader in AI development and innovation by 2030. With it this this policy definitely had a emphasis on economic growth, but you can a good way to look at it is as a highly incentivized wish list, and this wish list helps coordinate and guide the local governments and the private sectors to work together to further this AI development. They did this with an emphasis on their AI national champions, which were businesses endorsed by the government to focus on. De- to focus on developing specific sectors of AI. The private companies would do this by agreeing to focus on the government's strategic aims. And in return, they would receive preferential contract bidding, easier access to finance, and sometimes even market share protection. Now, as much as the AlphaGo played a pivotal role in this, the local governments have long been pushing for AI development within their own sectors. Even so, they would also receive incentive to do this, and they would get it in the form of uh, longer-term limits and promotions based on economic performance. Uh, Some examples of these AI national champions, we have Tencent, who is in charge of computer vision and medical diagnosis. We have uh, Badu with development of autonomous driving. And lastly, a company we will definitely touch on later, Alibaba with the development of smart cities. Now, of course, uh, AI technology is has dual use purposes, as in uh, it can be leveraged in both the civilian and the military sector, and that is not lost on China. Uh, as is typical fashion uh, in China, they have combined the military and, and uh, civil civil sections of their AI development into something called military civil fusion, which actually encompasses a wide range of technologies. But here, of course, we're going to focus on the AI. Um, the objectives of military-civil fusion are outlined 
and I'm taking this right from Xi Jinping's mouth, so this is, these are not my words, number one, to facilitate transfers between the defense and civilian sectors to improve the sophistication of China's military technology, particularly in sectors critical to informationized warfare. Number two, to create cohesion in Chinese industry and academia working with and in support of military objectives so that the entire system can be effectively mobilized in support of the military in the future. And number three, to drive technological innovation and economic growth. Now, I don't know if you were keeping score there, but I said like defense, military, and warfare several times in there. And the only, the only <laughs> point that was strictly about civilian measures was how many words long? Uh, it's like it's like, so that's like seven words long. <laughs> drive, drive economic growth. Yay! As Yay! Grow like, the economy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, also, also build dro- uh, drone swarms. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> um, this is a uh, yeah. This is pretty typical of China's efforts in a wide range of things. Um, and, and you know, also very typical Chinese. It's top down, state directed. Uh, you've got. As Zach outlined in the AIDP, you have universities signing on to these government directives uh, abreast. Chinese corporations, and they're all working towards a, a sort of unified goal at the very end of the day with the technologies that, that they are pursuing. The entire industry in China has been ordered to support the military's needs in this regard. Um, some uh, stuff that they're looking at in particular that I found interesting is uh, improved command and control. We mentioned that AI has the ability to make decisions very rapidly, uh, faster than a human being. The Chinese are toying with the idea of using this as some sort of advanced decision-making algorithm on the battlefield. Uh, drones, of course, everyone knows about drones. Undersea drones, that'll be new. Uh, it's also being toyed around with in their cruise missiles to allow them to act independently of other targeting radars and satellite information. So in case that network goes down, the missile can then act uh, with greater autonomy. So that's just a little sample of what they are uh, most interested in on the military side of things. And uh, if it's not too much of a disruption, I'd kind of like to talk about the state of where China is vis-a-vis the United States in the tech race. Well, Zach, did you have anything to add before we jump into there? Yeah, I do, definitely. Um, With the AIDP, just to mirror... Mike's point, the military application for AI was incredibly important to them. They saw AI as an inevitability within the military. And to draw a parallel to Sam's comparison of AI to electricity, they want to incorporate AI similarly to how electricity was implemented with a system-wide transformation we're talking every single aspect of the the military from you know the base technology to communication all of it will be ramped up and further boosted by ai and of course that's a that's a big help to a military that hasn't been involved in any major operations since their vietnam for those of you who didn't know china actually invaded vietnam shortly after us leaving in the 70s so uh, it works out so well yeah, it was a very attractive <laughs> real estate option for a lot of countries, and I can't imagine why. Um, uh, but anyways... Uh, you mean you don't like jungles and napalm? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I man. think they have some pretty nice beaches. I heard the surfing goes pretty good, actually. You know, so with all this talk about China's method of development, I just want to kind of draw a brief highlight to the history of Silicon Valley and how technology has developed in the United States, specifically with the most cutting edge, you know, all the internet stuff that's going on over there right now. Um, You know, obviously the U.S. government did play a role in the founding of Silicon Valley as the tech ecosystem for the United States, but it was much less 
it was much less of a major role than the CCP is trying to play now. Uh, so, you know, there was Department of Defense spending in California at the time that definitely helped drive things. But there were another number of other contributing factors, such as, you know, some excellent research universities focused on STEM, namely Stanford and kind of those surrounding campuses and stuff. It was the area was actually independently wealthy prior to the tech advent because of the gold rush. So there was a lot of uh, capital ready to be invested in promising projects. There is obviously a huge immigrant population, which helps drive new and diverse and innovative ways of looking at things. Um, You know, as well as the very first computer science departments in any colleges were founded in the area as well. So you know, yes, the U.S. government played a role kind of in this area, but it was not definitive. And it's more a way to think of it is as like a pebble that has snow wrapped around it, rolling down a hill, and the snow continues to build and build and build around that initial seed. And it's not, and you know, it's very clear how you can draw a huge contrast between the heavy-handed state direction of the CCP versus, uh, you know, what went on in Silicon Valley. So with that brief characterization of what China's doing and what the United States are doing, I'd actually like to sort of compare and contrast where they are, where they sit uh, vis-a-vis one another in this current technological race. Um, so it's cur- it's... I took a lot of, a little disclaimer. I took a lot of these numbers from a 2019 uh, report to Congress on the part of the U.S. China Economic and Security Review Commission. So it might be a touch dated, but not by very much. And the 2020 report did not even really mention AI, so I didn't bother using it. Anyways, uh, it is often cited that China. Uh, is leading in a lot of important metrics in AI. Uh, one of the most prominent is the, the the raw numbers of scientific patents they put out. They generate a tremendous amount of AI research. They also have the most uh, engineers working concurrently in the field. So that's important, but a very useful metric for measuring the quality of those of that research are the amount of patents that are filed in the same space uh, in outside jurisdictions. What do I mean by that? Um, if you file a patent in the United States and then that same patent gets filed in the offices in the European Union and Japan and China, you can bet that you know, a lot of people are interested in, in it. It's doing well. Uh, so here are some numbers. Uh, 4% of China's computer science and technology-related patents are being filed in that way, whereas the number for the American patents is 32% and it's 40% for the Japanese. This indicates that American research, despite the mass volume of Chinese research, is still of substantially higher quality. Uh, There's also a lot of noise made about the amount of funding that the Chinese government is giving to AI research. Uh, So that is government expenditure, and that's what people tend to focus on. What that doesn't account for is the amount of corporate expenditure going on on the American side, which is which absolutely dwarfs what the Chinese are doing at about $1 billion a year. I mean, and this is pretty substantial. Of the top 20 companies that are investing in computer services and AI-related stuff, uh, 12 are American, 12 of the 20, and only three of them are Chinese. Um, another metric that I heard is... Uh, Whereas China has a vast number of Chinese engineers, they don't have a whole lot of thought leaders, you might call them. They don't have a whole lot of the top experts, uh, people that can pick up a project and lead a team from start to finish and actually make a breakthrough. Those people, by and large, are located at American-based companies. Yeah, and and I think we'll be touching on this point a little bit more in a bit, but I don't think that's accidental why it shakes out like that. Um, suffice it to say, there is something to be said about the climate within China that maybe precludes that sort of innovation from taking place. Yeah, it's partly innovation. It's also part talent retention. There's there's another thing that I that I came across uh, in this research, and that is that between 85 and 90% of Chinese students who actually study this type of stuff in American universities say that if they could stay, they would. Um, 
Go ahead, Zach. And this is definitely mirrored within China itself. As said by Kai-Fu Lee, um, China is very aware of their misgivings when it comes to AI. Our media, who is never prone to sensationalize anything, <laughs> would have you think that AI in China, they're, they're a world power with it, or at least a burgeoning world power. But that is actually not the belief within China itself. They feel as though they are woefully behind. They know that they don't have the researchers. They know that they don't have the funding that the U.S. does. And their approach is to pour every resource they do have into developing whatever they can as fast as they can. Yeah, and I mean, you know, just to, I completely agree, and to highlight that point, Zach, I think it could be sort of likened to a poker player playing on tilt. Like, these are not the moves that you make if you are secure in your position in a competition. These are the moves that someone who is behind, who needs to put it all in to win, makes. Yeah, it's it's a very hectic, yeah, a, a very hectic grape-shotted style approach that the Chinese are taking right now What with these flashy... They're building a city from the ground up that's meant to facilitate AI and driverless vehicles. Yes, they definitely are. And if you look at the AIDP as it is outlined, you can see that economic growth, as I was saying previously, is incredibly important to them. They are trying to hit milestones in actual revenue, gross revenue, from technological advancements that compound on each other every you know five or so years so they are looking to get a a vast boost in what they're bringing in through just ai technology itself so from the outside looking in it seems as though they are realizing that their current gross income or what they're bringing in is in dire need of a boost and they want to do that through ai yeah i mean not to hit this point too hard because I think it's starting to become pretty clear. Um, another thing that you'll hear highlighted a lot in regards to the Chinese AI market is the number of billion dollar startups that they have spawned out of their market. Uh, Alibaba once being one of those startups, um, Baidu that Zach mentioned earlier and Tencent, some, some names that you've probably become familiar with even stateside. Um, yeah, they have a lot of billion-dollar startups, probably more than the United States. That doesn't necessarily mean, though, that they're breaking new ground or contributing as much value as some of the juggernauts that we have coming out of Silicon Valley. One of the most valuable things that they've produced is this open-source software, uh, about two-thirds of which in the world, again, coming from American companies. This is the type of stuff that uh, engineers will use to actually create new AI programs. Uh, and I'm not going to pretend to know exactly how it works, but uh, the experts in the field have indicated that this is sort of the bread and butter of creating future AI programs. Uh, one other statistic I want to throw at you, because I hit, uh, hit on the military stuff earlier, is that uh, America is actually still leading China with over seven times the number of military-related AI patents. So there's still a substantial lead in that regard. So Zach mentioned a little earlier the sensationalization that the media likes to portray. And I think maybe one of the roots of that is the tight cooperation between companies in China and the state. You know, it's easy to think that they are so far ahead when you see the cooperation that's going on between the multiple sectors in China. One instance that's really striking to me in terms of this is 
is if you think back a couple of years to the 2015 San Bernardino shooting, there was a huge major landmark court case between Apple and the U.S. federal government in which the government wanted to access the shooter's iPhone in order to determine if there were any other contacts that were complicit or if there was a cell or anything, terrorist cell or anything like that. And Apple was actually able to successfully combat the government and not open up their uh, phone to this sort of records request, which is just that is like night and day between. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. That's like fun. We're laughing because that is a night and day difference between what would go on in China and uh, the United that States. That wouldn't so, even be an option in China. No, of course not. You know, and, and, and more recently, I'm sure you've seen the news of the tech executives for Google, Facebook, you know, all these other companies being called in front of Congress and have to answer for their sins, whatever those happen to be. Um, but, you know, that sort of adversarial relationship does not exist in China. So when you're seeing all this money spent by the government and the government, you know, instead of directing uh, inquiries into the companies is instead supporting them, it, it can be easy. You know, it's understandable why some people think that we are f- so far behind in terms of AI. Well, you could say that it's that the adversarial nature of the relationship isn't present, but in China, I'd say that it, to an extent, still is. It's just a very one-sided power dynamic. If now is the appropriate time to talk about our good old boy Jack Ma, yeah. So Jack Ma, for those of you who don't know, is essentially the Jeff Bezos of China. He is the founder of Alibaba, um, which, as we mentioned, is obviously. Uh, China's Amazon. And he is currently the wealthiest person in China and one of the top wealthiest people in the world. And I had some apprehension in saying that because as of the time of this recording, nobody knows where he is. He has been super duper disappeared by the CCP. He's been out for a couple months. He's been missing Um, since October 2020. Yeah, thank you. As of this time (laughs) of recording in January 2021. Yeah, so he's been MIA. And, uh, you know, this is really striking. He made some not so nice comments about the Chinese financial system. He said it, you know, the Chinese banking financial system was run by a bunch of old men who were ill-equipped to handle the new technological revolution that China is undergoing. Um, you know, and for this, he's been disappeared. And this is, this really stands in stark contrast to the United States. Like, can you imagine if Jeff Bezos, uh, you know, had, for instance, a newspaper that launched continual attacks on the president of the United States? I mean, <laughs> how crazy would that be? <laughs> how crazy would that be? You know, but he, he's alive and well and off on a super yacht somewhere with his, you know, several mistresses and everything. So, you know, he's, he's doing hunky dory despite making, uh, you know, similarly aggressive claims about the U.S. government. <clears throat> um, Even more aggressive claims. It's not. Let's yeah, not exactly. Ourselves. Yeah, more, more aggressive. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, you know, and this gets back to the point that I had uh, sort of foreshadowed earlier, which is the nature of the authoritarian single party state that is China under the CCP really. My argument is that it prohibits innovation of the type needed to become a world leader in any technology, let alone AI, by 2030. Uh, It sort of limits your scope of innovation to the courtroom maxim of never ask a question you don't know the answer to, and in this case, never develop an AI algorithm that you don't know what it's going to do. You know, like, so for instance, say you're developing a new fintech algorithm to do a better, more accurate credit score for citizens in order to figure out whether to extend loans to or at what terms or whatever, and it so happens that in the course of feeding this AI a bunch of data that CCP officials should actually have their credit downgraded and should be charged a higher interest rate or whatever. How do you think that would go? Do you think only the president would be fired? Do you think anyone who worked on that AI would be fired? Do you think the entire company would be taken down? Do you think all of those researchers would be disappeared? It's, um, you know, it's a very, like, I say that kind of glibly, but it, it you can see how the political dynamic within China really precludes any sort of groundbreaking innovation from occurring because definitionally you don't know what the result of that innovation will be. I will say a counterpoint to that, Sam, is 
China and the CCP very much innovates, but they innovate within the confines of their authoritative state. It is no surprise that China and the CCP have the leading AI technology in facial recognition. And as, <laughs> as terrible as it is to say this, Alibaba was at the forefront of that technology. So I would hate to think that poor Jack Ma was found with his own facial recognition software. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. <laughs> and, and for those of you doubting that he was intentionally disappeared by the CCP, they fired several warning shots in his direction before it actually happened, up to and including a corruption investigation on his company. So, uh, yeah, and then he was also replaced at the head. So. Yeah, and as we've said uh, in episode number four, the great thing about anti-corruption uh, investigations is that they're usually never wrong. In, chi- <laughs> in China, you're always correct if you point the finger at someone and say, sir, you are corrupt. <laughs> <It's just that laughs> you're ignoring the fact that you probably are too, owing to the fact that you're, your butt's in that seat. Um, yeah, and, and I don't want to gloss over this. You, you know, Mike, why don't we were laughing pretty heavily a minute ago in terms of facial recognition, but it's obviously a severe subject and you know, what is the number one application of facial recognition technology right now in China? Uh, well, I don't know what the number one in terms of raw numbers would be, but I can tell you what's making the news the most, and that is the the, the Xinjiang repression of the Uyghur Muslims. Yeah, that's how they um they use AI algorithms to, it, after, after having tracked everyone's face, they've kind of determined, okay, who's going where, who are they hanging out with, who is the most likely to be a terrorist. They're concerned with Islamic terrorism coming out of the, the Uyghur Muslim area. Um, and they will go ahead and round up people that they suspect of being dangerous. It's, it's, I, I don't want to be sensationalist here, but it, it does kind of hearken to the whole minority report thing where you are being thrown into a concentration camp for suspicion of future whatever. Um, and it's, and in some cases, like literally they, they will find people who have this, I forgot what the name of the app was. There was this very particular app that they were suspicious of. And if you had it on your phone, uh, they would, go ahead and round you up, and then it was on you to prove your lack of suspicion, to prove your <laughs> to, innocence, and you, have to, you were immediately like off to the gulag. Yeah, and obviously, you know, I'm laughing. I mean, only laughing because you laugh or you cry, basically, in this sort of situation, but that is completely ass-backwards to how we do things in the United States and any other, uh, you know, liberal democracy insofar as you, the prosecutor has to prove your guilt. You do not have to prove you're innocent. You know, innocent until don't, don't proven guilty, that is not the case, and that sort of uh, corruption of the law is being, is aided and abetted by developments in AI technology by the Chinese Communist Party. That segues nicely into another point that I like to make along the lines of innovation, um, and that is that a lot of AI experts and stuff just don't really view China as the ideal place to go settle down and live uh, for a variety of reasons. It's not like they have to be Uyghur Muslim in order to feel estranged. Um, <laughs> yeah, as a lot of people who've lived in China will tell you, if you're not like ethnically Han Chinese, then it's kind of hard to be accepted as Chinese. Uh, having not been through it myself, I'm going to limit my comment to just that. But um, yeah, I mean, there, there's a reason that China relies on it attempts to leverage and depend on these foreign created technologies, international innovation resources in order to get the ball rolling on its end. Of course, they are very, very active in tech transfer attempts. Chinese firms attempt acquisitions and investments of overseas tech firms all the time. In some cases, they do resort to IP theft. Um, And uh, in order to lure talent, they have really, really generous packages being offered right now, something like $100,000 up front for top-level researchers that want to come teach in their universities, and then pretty generous salaries uh, going forward from there. Um, A point to that that parallels something that you mentioned earlier, Mike, in the fact that China does 
produce a lot of research. But like you were saying, it is research that is done, created, and crafted for China. They don't publish research in an attempt to help other nations or to coordinate with other AI researchers. They produce research for themselves. Now, there is a disparity between this in the sense that they read our research, they incorporate it, and they use it. But the pre-existing world is less likely to, let's say, translate their Chinese research from Mandarin in order to get a glimpse of what they are working on, which I think leads in part to this idea or this misconception that they are in fact ahead of us in the AI race. Much of what they do is for them, by them, and they don't seem to care very much about changing that. Yeah, no, I think that's a point that we've touched on a lot through this episode, the insularity that is AI within China. A parallel that I foresee swirling around in a lot of people's minds who are listening uh, would be that of the United States and Soviet Union's technology race back in the day. Um, And we've talked a lot about here just now that it can be very difficult to foster a suitable climate for innovation in an authoritarian country. But you know, if, if top-down directed, these types of regimes do have a track record of achieving very limited specific goals that they're set out to achieve. For example, like when we talk about America winning the space race, in reality, what we really did was get to the moon first, but almost every other significant milestone, the Soviets were the first to get a person into space, uh, first to put an object, you know, Sputnik into orbit. Uh, they probably were capable of putting someone on the moon. Now, now some would tell you that the United States was capable of reaching all those steps at the same time, but you know, the Soviets actually stepped up and did it. Uh, now, whether or not that was a sustainable lead, uh, you know, that's that's sort of an open question to me. I'm sure someone else smarter than me has settled it, but um, I, I think uh, Sam, you might have some more to say about that in terms of like what what the what the opportunity cost of that sort of stuff may have been. Yeah, I think opportunity cost is a good way to think about it because when you have a unidirectional uh, focus and you're only evaluating success or failure of a project in terms of a single metric and not in terms of trade-offs, then you can easily achieve success. You know, in the Soviet Union, if it was a commune's directive to produce a thousand tons of potatoes over the course of the year, you better believe that they were going to produce that thousand tons of potatoes because that was their only directive. But it it's not looking at the total picture. What did they forego in order to do that? Was that even the most efficient allocation of their resources? Should they have even been producing potatoes as opposed to turnips or whatever? And in much the same way, the AIDP is a modern five-year plan. Now, since the time of founding, it was really more like a 15-year plan, but it's really along the same axis of we are going to achieve success in this particular field, no matter what the cost and no matter the expense. And you know, when you only look at the success that something like the AIDP AIDP achieves in its objective, then it can look quite good. But this is hard to forget. China is actually quite poor. Like a lot of the country lives well below, you know, what would be considered an acceptable standard of living even in Beijing, let alone the United States or the rest of the world. And the central government is dumping a ton of resources into this one factor success. So yeah, you might see some success there, but at what cost is the question I'd like to ask. But Sam, I thought China just announced that it had eradicated poverty officially. Yes, they're a moderately prosperous society. They Michael. are officially a moderately <laughs> prosperous society. That's, yeah. that's coming from Xi Jinping's mouth, not mine. I will say as much as we draw parallels to China, the AIDP, and the Soviet Union during the space race, I will say that 
China is very aware of their weaknesses in the sense of already established AI within the United States and the EU, and they are very much hoping that with this highly incentivized wish list, that the local governments and the private sectors are on their own accord putting their focus in developing areas in which they can see the most growth the quickest. So they are attempting to stay away from those already established areas because when you get a foothold like that, especially in our economy and our, our tech, our, the way technology is today, it's almost impossible to overcome it. So they are, they're hoping that we, they head in that direction. Yeah, and you know one thing, I, I kind of want to eat my own words for just a second now. Not entirely, but you know, obviously we've done a lot of comparison between perhaps the Soviet Union and China, you know, top-down central authorities, all this sort of stuff. But as Zach mentioned and highlighted, the EIDP is very different in terms of it is a much more decentralized, market-driven approach than 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 was done anything like the Soviet Union. This is, this is not like it is not a one-for-one one comparison. And the question as to whether or not China is communist is a really good one, and I think one that we will actually do an episode on at some point. Uh, but you, you know, I don't want to make the comparisons that even I've been drawing overbroad. So to conclude, in typical Chinese fashion, the CCP's approach to AI development involves tremendous manpower and capital not to mention state direction, on a scale that other nations would simply struggle to match. The Chinese tech sector has spawned an impressive number of startups valued at over a billion dollars, and it currently publishes the greatest volume of peer-reviewed research in the space. However, the United States retains an advantage in quality, overall investment, and the attraction and retention of top-tier AI talent. While the United States' lead is unlikely to be lost in the future, China's method of AI development is beginning to bear fruit and is worthy of concern. This is the time in which we let our listeners know that we do a mailbag. We've just finished up our first episode, if you're listening to this in chronological order. So please shoot us your questions, uh, hate mail. And if your comments and questions are sufficiently ignorant and vitriolic, it will fit right in with the tone of the show, and we will include it on the next mailbag. Hate mail goes to sambach at gmail.com. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. And Just kidding. Is, uh, Everything at the synopsis podcast at gmail.com. Exactly. Hate mail that included. Is, that, once again, uh, that is the synopsis podcast, no spaces, no periods at gmail.com. The synopsis podcast at gmail.com. And, uh, you know, I want to take a second and thank Zach. Zach, um, you know, thank you for coordinating with us on this episode, for coming in, for sharing your insight, and for being a team player through it all. Absolutely. I had a ton of fun doing the research. And I got to say, you guys, hearing what you had to say, you, you really made me feel like I'm the expert here. <laughs> <laughs> and on no, that for real though, it, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. Good to hear, man. Well, it was, it was fun having you. And on that happy note, we want to thank all of our listeners for tuning into the Synopsis Podcast. I'm Michael. I'm Sam. And I'm Zach. And until next time, remember, nothing is to be feared, only understood. The Synopsis Podcast is co-hosted by Sam Bach and Michael Williamson. Produced by Mark Fusito. Artwork by Eli Bach.